0: Irish cream cold brew with cold foam now at Tim Hortons, or try cold foam on any of your Tim Hortons favorites. Modifications extra for a limited time at participating U.S. locations. Welcome to the Connecting with Coincidence Radio Show with Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, bringing together the world's synchronicity experts to help you use meaningful coincidences to develop spiritually, psychologically, and practically. For more information, put Connecting with Coincidence into your web browser to find the book, website, Psychology Today blog, YouTube channel, and Facebook page. And now, here is the host of the Connecting with Coincidence radio show, Dr. Bernie Beitman, M.D.
1: Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. Yes, I am your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, M.D. I'm a psychiatrist in private practice and on the faculty at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Carl Jung introduced the Western world to synchronicity, then the rock band The Police popularized the idea in their album, Synchronicity. They were followed by numerous books, articles, movies, and videos. Why this growing interest? Weird coincidences are messages to us earthlings about the true nature of reality, messages we can try to decode. They tell us that our minds are interconnected and part of a greater mind that I call the psychosphere, that each of us has hidden powers and abilities. Look for their helpful advice, their evidence for deep connections with those you love. Put Connecting with Coincidence into your web browser to read my Psychology Today blog and my book, Connecting with Coincidence. To see how sensitive you are to coincidences, take the Weird Coincidence Survey on my website. Connect with Coincidence, Synchronicity, Spoken Here. Our guest today is Ed Kelly. Ed is currently a research professor in the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. He received his Ph.D. in Psycholinguistics and Cognitive Science from Harvard in 1971. He spent the next 15 years working mainly in experimental parapsychology, followed by a similar stint with a large neuroscience group at the University of North Carolina. There he carried out EEG and fMRI studies of cortical adaptation to natural tactile stimuli. He returned to full-time psychical research in 2002, serving as the lead author of the book, Irreducible Mind, which came out in 2007, and Beyond Physicalism, which came out in 2014, both produced under the auspices of Esalen's Center for Theory and Research. He is now finally getting back to his central research interest, functional neuroimaging studies of psi and altered states in exceptional subjects. Welcome to the show, Ed. Glad to be here. Please tell us about what you mean by functional neuroimaging studies of psi and altered states in exceptional subjects.
2: Well, um, what we're basically trying to do is to find out what's going on in the brains of people who are succeeding to an unusual degree in various kinds of tasks, like, for example, uh, it could be a card-guessing task or a psychokinesis PK task, uh, and we've also become interested more recently in studying people who are able to get into unusual states of consciousness that we know or suspect to be psych These include, for example, things like uh, deep hypnotic states or deep meditative states, uh, mediumistic trance. Out of body states, things like that. Uh, you're trying to make
1: correlations between the state of the brain and the person's ability to report uh, psi events.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, let me. I'll give you an example of uh, how this could be important. Please do. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, parapsychological experiments. Uh, just proves evidence that something odd has happened. There's sort of free-floating statistical anomalies. Uh, But if we could find something that predicted whether a guess is going to be good or bad, Mm -hmm. uh, we would be anchoring the psi part to something else, which is always good, and especially good if it happens to be something biological. (laughs) But it it goes quite a bit further than that, because uh, if we had such information, now we could do another test, say, another experiment, and go through all the trials in advance, pick out the ones that have that signature that we discovered in the last experiment, with the expectation that those trials are going to have a higher hit rate than the experiment as a whole or the other trials. Mm -hmm. So we've already got a kind of uh, statistical control on psi. Furthermore, if the, the things that seem to predict a good response are things that we can influence, then we have the possibility, at least, of experimental control, meaning we could do something to the person to, say, biofeedback regime or by you know injecting a current at some particular place in the head or something of that sort mm-hmm. and actually uh, uh, acquire experimental control of the f- phenomenon.
0: Oh, that's very and there system. are other
2: more subtle things, like distinguishing sources of psi effects in particular experiments, that sort of thing.
1: What does that mean, distinguishing uh, sources of psi-effects?
2: Well, I'll give you one horrible example, uh, horrible to me as a mere psychologist. Uh, my colleague, Helmut Schmidt, a physicist back in the 1970s, was doing experiments in which he continued to get PK effects on a sort of uh, uh, electronic coin-flipping machine. Uh, even when he drastically changed the random number generators that were used or where they were located, And at a certain point, uh, he began doing experiments that involved displacement in time. Uh, So he would uh, generate a, uh, uh, a tape, a recording of the output of the random number generator on day one and then play that tape back into his machine in front of a subject on day two. And lo and behold, the subject seemed to get the same kind of results that they were getting under other conditions. Now, for me as a psychologist, question number one is, was it really the subject now influencing what happened yesterday, or was it Helmut yesterday influencing what happened then? And it always seemed to me more plausible to uh, implicate Helmut than the subject. So if we knew a lot about uh, how their respective brains looked when they were having success in this kind of a task, we could potentially discriminate who was really doing it and when. Oh
1: that's good. Uh, that's this. good.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's good. And just to make it clear for our, our our people listening, uh the PK effects you were measuring were uh deviations from random in the uh coin flipping. Yeah. So that you are right. you're asking whether the uh the subject could somehow um make the coins come out in the way the subject wanted rather than uh and and beat the random. Correct. Okay, and then, then the day before, you helmet set it up, and you couldn't tell whether helmet had made the uh, impact on what was to come, or whether the and that would be a future way of thinking about it versus the subject somehow being able to go back into the past and pull the past into the future. Right. Well, oh, this this uh, the idea f- of being able to just starting with. Be- be able to mentally change the way the coins flipped is something that has been around for a while but it's still a lot of people haven't heard of that and that's one of the paradigms that you're listening that you're doing but you said it was a horrible thing uh as a psychologist what was horrible about about that oh it was experience?
2: Just for me the, the whole idea of retrocausation is uh, just like I can't get my uh, my mind around it very easily yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. That's we're, that's what we're, you
2: meant. we're pretty much locked into the everyday world as we normally experience it, and really exotic stuff like this is hard to hard to comprehend. Mm-hmm. And the, some of the current um,
1: experiments that you're doing, as you talked about earlier, the the what are the the psi um, the specific psi elements that you are using as part of those experiments?
2: Well, we've. Uh, implemented a variety of uh, traditional forced choice kind of tasks with different sets of targets. Uh, and those, uh, I mean, they're widely despised these days as being too boring and all that, but uh, that's the name of the game. I mean, uh, you know, you, you study coincidences in which weird things happen in everyday life. They're big and dramatic. Uh, but it's very hard to uh, evaluate their probability, so to speak. So yes, uh, yes. what we trade off in, in the laboratory is that we now have uh, relatively complete control over things and know a great deal about what ought to happen by chance so that we can measure uh, relatively precisely just how unusual whatever happens is. That's the name of the game in experiments. So we have a bunch of those, and, uh, and as some you of, and know, some... my colleagues... Mm-hmm.
1: and so uh, yes, uh, we'll go back to that. But uh, but some of those experiments are card are card guessing the way they did it at the Rhine, and that's what you mean mm-hmm. by bo- boring things. Uh, and yeah. y- and what are some of the? Uh, and so they are to guess. Just so if people know this, they are to guess the card that has been picked up at a room someplace distant from where that person is.
2: Well, in, in our case, everything's uh, computer driven, so uh, computers and various kinds of. Uh, uh, random number generators are selecting what the target is and may or may not display it to anybody else. But the uh, the, the subject's task is to use whatever means are necessary to figure out what the, uh, what the target is and do that uh, better than chance expectation. And there are people, there have been people, including the guy that I worked years ago, who were extremely successful in this sort of task
1: and that, and one of the important points here is that you're studying exceptional subjects and yes. one of the arg- one of the arguments against that is that the skeptics say, "Well, you're just picking out people that'll make a come out right." And I've never understood that skeptical response really. But we're we're coming to the end of this segment, uh, so I want to maybe pick that up about exceptional subjects the next time. You are listening okay. to Connecting with Coincidence with your host Bernie Biteman, MD, on the X Zone Broadcast Network. Our our guest is Ed Kelly.
2: Don't wait. Visit Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save.
0: With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Charles Barkley in a pickup game.
4: We'll take Barkley. Ha! First pick. Sorry, kids.
0: <laughs> yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan.
3: Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.
1: Welcome back to CC with BB, connecting with coincidence with Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD. Our guest today is Edward Kelly. Who works in with the Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA and is a very well-respected colleague of mine, who is studying back in the lab exceptional subjects. Exceptional in that they can do special things that uh, fall under the idea of psi. And we just talked about card guessing, um, but these these exceptional subjects. Ed, um, tell us more about them and how they fit into your research. Style.
0: Well,
2: uh, going back to what you said at the uh, end of the previous segment there, uh, I've always thought it's kind of loopy that so much parapsychology research has involved unselected subjects. I agree. I uh, agree. If you want to study a, a rare skill of some sort, like say creativity or high jumping or whatever, uh, it would make complete sense to look for people who have those kind of skills and study them. Rather than study people who have some kind of distant, dilute uh, form of whatever that ability is, uh, and historically, I have to say, uh, I think a lot of the most impressive results in parapsychology have come from the occasional gifted subject. And this idea that uh, that's illegitimate somehow because you're forcing things to come out the, the way you want—that's just loopy. That's that—that that doesn't merit response.
1: It's still pretty amazing um, that that's what they do. Just people off the street, almost uh, put them into the put them into the experiment. Um, what's their justification for that, Ed?
2: Uh, or you don't have? Well, them? I'm sure it, I'm sure it differs in different cases. But uh, let's face it, there are lots of mainstream scientists, in particular, for whom the existence of uh, psi phenomena is theoretically problematic. They challenge the basic worldview that we grew up believing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the physicalist worldview That's what we're talking about here. Um, and not just physicalist, but physicalist at the level of late 19th century classical physics. <laughs> um, yeah. And it is certainly true that uh, within that context, psi phenomena look to be impossible. But to me, that's what makes them interesting. You can't just, in an a priori way, declare that these things can't exist uh, without examining the evidence. And there's a lot of it, uh, both spontaneous cases, including cases of the sort you've been studying, and laboratory research. There are thousands of published experiments in peer-reviewed journals. You can't just wave that away.
1: Yes, And my approach is, as you're implying, is to do the same thing you're doing, which is to convince people that there's a real phenomenon here and we need to pay attention to it. And that paying attention to it means helping people develop the capacity. And what you are doing and what you did in Beyond Physicalism, and especially tried in Chapter 4, is be able to try to marshal the evidence that shows how the brain might be functioning while people have exceptional experiences including mystical experiences creativity and psi phenomena that's such important work and it's an important idea just for people to get the idea that we can do studies of the brain that may show us the states of the brain that are conducive to psi events
2: Amen, brother.
1: And with that, we get to the question of how it happens. What state the brain must be in uh, or states the brain can be in to be, be able to have that happen. And you were creating them in the laboratory, and I look for them out there in the world. And some of those are uh, so, well i'll just say the words telepathy clairvoyance precognition as well as being able to as, as well as psychokinetic events and there there are different conditions that you can do in the lab versus what happens outside of the lab but why't you why don't you go ahead with the critical question i think that that chapter four gets more clear about um, is the is how the mind and brain, the greater mind and brain, may work together.
2: Okay, well, this is a uh, whopper. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> our, our first book, uh, Irreducible Mind, was intended to uh, pull together in one place a lot of evidence showing human mental capacities that we believe are Beyond the capacity of the unaided brain to ex- to explain. Uh, top of everybody's list of such capacities, of course, are psi capacities, and perhaps postmortem survival, if that exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a big internal debate in psychical research about survival, and whether uh, evidence suggesting survival. Might be explainable, alternatively, in terms of psi interactions among living persons only.
1: And what we mean by uh, survival—what we, what we mean by survival—is
2: living have, after the death of the body, living, remaining conscious in some way. Yes, thank you. Having a mind, a functioning mind, after the body. Uh, we gone. don't have to get into that debate for present no. purposes because right. both horns of that dilemma are fatal to conventional <laughs> physicalism. Uh, but uh, there are lots of other things. And you see the point here is everybody agrees that there are normally strong correlations between the mental and the physical, right? Mm-hmm. You get whacked on the head or drink too much and something changes on the mental side. Yep. Well, you say, look, I decide I want to raise my arm. and The damn thing goes up in the air. Isn't that <laughs> mental causation? And the response of the physicalist to that is no, sorry, you misunderstood the causality here because in fact that, uh, that intention of yours, that mental thing, is really just a pattern of neuroelectric activity in your brain. Therefore, physical causes physical, no problem. So you see, the way to defeat that view of things is to find phenomena that cannot, in principle, be explained by goings on in the brain. And in that book, we assemble a lot of such stuff. I'm not going to try to review it here. There's just too much of it. It's an 800-plus page book. Anyway, what it does, what it did for me, was to validate an alternative picture of how the mind-brain system works. It's been around for millennia, but was advanced in particular by William James in an 1897 lecture on two supposed objections to the doctrine of immortality. And what he pointed out was that the correlation between mental and physical stuff which most physicalists interpret as demonstrating that uh, the production model, that brain produces mind, it can be interpreted in a different way in which the mind and the brain are functionally, perhaps even ontologically distinct things. Normally, the the mind is generating a sort of virtua, virtual reality, uh, the, the world in which we find ourselves living and experiencing. But it does that normally in a way that's, highly constrained by what's happening on the brain side. So uh, some neuroscientists, in fact, have even talked about ordinary perceptual synthesis as being like dreaming constrained by uh, sensory input. (laughs) And once you open the door there, uh, take that view as plausible, and I now have come to believe that that's the correct view of things, suddenly the possibility of survival seems much more realistic just a short step from that to survival
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what i get interested in as you as i hear you and read is just what what is going on I, in the more detailed way uh, between uh, our brains and our minds that makes mm-hmm. uh, us able to n- not just think about uh, survival, but to have those hints of survival uh, that uh, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition seem to indicate? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, it's, that that, that There's the old idea of the filter theory, which, uh, of course, we've gone over a bunch of times, but our audience hasn't heard it, that there's sometimes an an older idea that there's a filter that can be um, expanded or contracted or made thinner or thicker, some with holes that are wider or narrower, depending on (laughs) your metaphors, that let the greater mind in that allow us to know that we are connected with each other and with our surroundings and something greater, more than we uh, currently are able to recognize. And and from the coincidence perspective, uh, coincidences alert individuals to these kinds of uh, potentials.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, of course, was the main uh, purpose of that chapter four in Beyond Physicalism. Uh, And let me just say, by way of introduction, that in that book, we started from the well the point of departure was that, okay, we're now convinced that physicalism, conventional view of mind produced by brain, is incorrect. What's going to replace it? And we were struggling toward an alternative picture, one that incorporates this filter or permission or transmission idea of William James's and Fred Myers's. Uh, and in Chapter 4, we tried to assemble what little there currently is that uh, might give us some insight into the kind of common threads of various conditions in which that filter seems to open. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the most important part of that chapter, I think, is really the uh, the last part in which we talked about recent work on neuroimaging of psychedelic states. And in particular, uh, some work that was done in the UK with uh, psilocybin, uh, injecting the psilocybin and following the response using fMRI. And the big uh, point of that study, hey, hang on, let me finish this. The big point of that study was that contrary to everybody's ex- expectations, you know, big experiences, brain must be super active, right? Instead, what happened was that there were there were no increases anywhere, instead and, there was a general and we're, and we're decrease.
1: We're gonna come back to that because we're coming to the end of this, Ed. I'm oh. sorry about that. You're listening to okay. Connecting with Coincidence with your host Bernie Biteman on X Broadcast Network. We're talking with Ed Kelly.
0: From our broadcast studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to the world and beyond, you're watching the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
4: I am Dr. Carl O'Helvey, Founder-President by donating at www.HolisticCancerFoundation.com.
0: Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, the Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka? Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's author of a fascinating book, Amen.
1: Welcome back to CC with BB. Our guest today is Ed Kelly, and we were cut off because we were talk- while we were talking about something very, very important here, the effect of psychedelics on the brain that allow the brain to somehow experience mystical and psi events, and lots more coincidences, by the way, uh, that What is the state of the brain that allows that to happen? And Ed was talking about a counterintuitive idea that rather than the brain being more activated, which is somehow what people tend to think, it's really more slowed down. Would you please repeat and elaborate on that, Ed? Yeah.
2: Um, In uh, Chapter 4, in this uh, concluding section, we actually uh, take as point of departure uh, a very important class of near-death experiences. Uh, which occur sometimes, quite frequently actually, under extreme physiological conditions, such as deep general anesthesia and or cardiac arrest. And the reason why that's important is that the physiological conditions believed by most neuroscientists to be required for conscious experience have been abolished, essentially. I mean, that's the whole point of anesthesia, right, to prevent you from being conscious. Yep. And yet, we know, I believe, that some people are not only having conscious experiences, but they're having the most intense and transformative conscious experiences of their entire lives. They are essentially, I think, mystical experiences had mm-hmm. under less than optimal circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that that's the kind of endpoint of a uh, sequence of things. The nearest point to it in the ordinary physiology world is this business about psychedelics and what they do to the brain. And the the sort of paradigm case that I started to talk about at the end of the last section was this uh, study with injected psilocybin done in the U.K., uh, where what happened was, contrary to everybody's expectations, was a generalized decrease in brain activity, and in particular, uh, decrease decreased activation and decoupling of the major nodes of a system in the brain, known as the default mode network, which basically is the system that's sort of constantly there in the background anchoring us to the world of the here and now. Uh, And so what um, what we pulled together in chapter four was a number of indications from other areas, mystical experience and Uh, creativity, suggesting that they share uh, this unexpected feature of the brain basically stopping working in the usual way to sort of ground us in this reality and that that somehow it may be what opens us up to these infusions of higher capacity from a different place beyond the brain. Uncoupling. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, let me just add one more thing. uh, As I said, this is all very preliminary stuff, cobbling together a whole lot of uh, early, sometimes fairly primitive studies, but sort of suggesting a general trend, and we wanted to emphasize the enormous potential for ongoing research on things like psychedelics, meditation, possibly deep hypnosis, that seem to share this property of somehow opening people up because we can study those in the lab and learn more about what really needs to happen in order for these um, uh, infusions to occur you're going to have to get the irb to let you
1: use some psilocybin aren't you
2: well, that's a big subject. Luckily, we have some colleagues in that world, and we're sort of tracking things, but we, we cannot do those kinds of studies here at UVA right now. All we'll right. have to get somebody down here who, uh, you know, a, a really distinguished psychopharmacologist who would like to set up and collaborate with us on stuff like that.
1: When you say uncoupling the nodes of the default uh, network, uh, what, mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you mean by uncoupling the nodes, and which nodes are you talking about?
2: Well, these are in particular sort of uh, medial structures in frontal cortex and uh, uh, posterior parietal and cingulate cortex, a little further down. Um, those the, key- are the uh-
1: yeah. The nodes are in the in the anterior anterior and posterior cingulate with the ventromedial prefrontal cortex involved, I think, also. Mm-hmm. And, yes. And that. In a, in a very gross way might correlate with uh, the kind of chatter uh, that goes on in our minds all the time the kind of uh, monkey uh, the monkey swinging monkey thoughts that uh, meditation yep. people talk about and and, right. and it's it's quieting that those thoughts that are just all over the place that even some people I've read Kill, kill themselves because they can't stop it. It just drives them crazy mm-hmm. that yeah. it's that, that uh, uncoupling the nodes of the a default mode network may correlate uh, to some degree with, with quieting down that, that mental chatter.
2: Yeah. And by the way, uh, there's a recent book. Do I have it here? Uh, it's by Danny Goldman and Richie Davidson. Huh. It's called Altered Traits, and they they go through the whole history of meditation research, including their own research with uh, some very advanced Tibetan meditators to develop a story very much along those lines. In fact, uh, uh, Richie Davidson even thinks there's, uh, we know now for sure, that uh, the brain is at least uh, moderately plastic in that, Uh, Things about its structure and function are activity-dependent and can be modified by meditative practice in various ways. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, they go on at length about uh, silencing the monkey mind as the central central movement in meditative practice.
1: And do they try to correlate that with uh, changes in brain function?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Oh, yeah. You know, he's very – Richie Davidson, is. he's got a huge neuroimaging operation at the University of Wisconsin and is one of the real uh, principal forces in this whole development.
1: Great. Uh, how does the subject – Not interested
2: coincide? in psi, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, that's what's so amazing to me. Yeah. That's what's so amazing to me. He's not interested in psi, yet he's got it running around his his office. I mean, his lab all the time. People are must be tuning in to stuff that, and they report to him. But he's ignoring it, like uh, people with ketamine doing ketamine uh, infusions ignore uh, some of the psychedelic experiences of their subjects.
2: Uh huh. It's just and what some b- people at least think it's those experiences that produce the uh, <laughs> medical marvels,
1: not the drug itself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we have
1: good evidence of that from psychedelic research at Johns Hopkins, where people mm-hmm, yeah. um, people in the dying phase, or in in and I've got I've seen it in Spring Grove, Maryland, years ago, uh, where psychedelics uh-huh. help alcoholics uh, change their alcohol patterns. We it's just talking about rewiring the brain to get it to be more conducive to what we want it to do, and psychedelics yeah. uh, can be aids to do that under the ro- proper conditions. it. Right. Uh, <laughs> it, just, w- this for a moment. Let's let's uh, be sad about the money spent on the military when so much could some much of that money could be spent in trying to understand how our minds and brains work, particularly re- reincarnation potentials and uh, and psi experiences. But we're trying to have that. Hmm. We're trying to get that to, to change. Uh, another, yeah. another question. How does the subject of coincidences look to you from the perspective of a scientist so deeply engaged with psychical research?
2: Uh-huh. Well, uh Well, uh, it's a huge subject, as you certainly know. Yeah. And it seems to me there are sort of three classes, main classes of events. There are certainly are some things that just happen entirely by chance. And I'm inclined to sympathize with uh, certain statisticians to the extent of believing that that class is probably bigger than most people realize. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I just just got myself a copy of this book by David Hand, The Improbability Principle.
1: He was on the uh, show a couple uh, of weeks ago, yeah.
2: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I, I was hoping to read this book before you and I had this conversation. <laughs> I didn't fair. get very far into it. Uh, but I saw the general tenor of things, and I particularly was distressed to see how he treats the uh, work in experimental parapsychology.
1: Yes, that part of his awful. book
2: is an abomination. Okay. Yes,
1: yes.
2: Um, yes. Anyway, uh, but there is that class for sure. Yes. Then there's another, I think, quite large class of events that involve psi processes in some way. Uh, you know about Rex Stanford and his uh, psi-mediated instrumental response. Uh, papers and all that, where people do things that uh, they weren't expecting to do, but that lead them to uh, encounter some favorable circumstance or avoid some potentially catastrophic one. And Rex managed to translate that into a bunch of experimental studies that confirm that possibility. So there are those, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, in some ways, the most interesting class, and I'm not sure whether it has any members at the moment, but I'm inclined to think it probably does, which involve things that are just so extreme, so complicated, that they just don't seem to lend themselves to explanation in terms of individual psi processes. That is, psi psi processes grounded in single persons. And I I mean, I know of one in particular, I couldn't even... uh, report it to you if if we had the time because it involves personal stuff mike murphy told me a story about a uh, a set of coincidences that took place over multiple days involving multiple multiple persons yeah including a guy who called him in the middle of the night wondering why he was calling but it supplied a very important piece of the whole a fantastically complicated thing and uh, i've begged mike to write it up and publish it somewhere uh, so I wonder whether such things exist, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that.
1: Well, uh, as we we're coming to to the end of this, and I, I just for one comment, the difference between the PMIR, psi-mediated, or even telepathy and clairvoyance, um, uh, which I pay more attention to suggest to me some sort of big mind uh, and that the level you're talking about with Mike Murphy's story is is a more complex version of the same thing which is the way I'm thinking about it right now um, we'll come mm-hmm. to, back to this uh, when we get back and you are listening to Connecting with Coincidence with your host Bernie Biteman, MD on the X-Zone Broadcast Network and our guest is Edward Kelly <laughs>
3: Simo TV offers what the others only wish they could provide. Fifteen exclusive channels like X-Zone, Sci-Fi and horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. Five hundred built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at SimulTV.com. Do it today.
0: The new nonfiction book, Razor of Madness, is similar to cult movies like Clockwork Orange, Dragon's Tattoo, or The Other Side of Hell. Wayne Morin Jr. and Thomas Lee will expose widespread and systematic deficiencies in this thought-provoking tell-all novel. Mind control rages among scholars in law schools. Human rights are ignored while thought reform and mental manipulation are accepted practices used as behavior modification. Dr. Louis Jolion West comes to mind. Media and public scrutiny shows that United States mental hospitals are in fact destructive murder industries. Razor of Madness expose a novel details this epidemic through an in-depth professional and personal investigation. For decades, there has been a revolving door policy that still releases killers and pedophiles back into society. The maestro of mind control continues to haunt America to this very day. Razor of Madness is available in paperback or as a downloadable ebook at Amazon.com.
4: I'm William S. Peckham. If you enjoy a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, then you'll love my novel, From Out of the Woodwork. It's the story of a young Toronto contractor, Sean Kennedy, who buys derelict homes, guts them, and turns them into multi-family dwellings. Slums just waiting to happen. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, the house fights back. Former owners unexpectedly come out of the woodwork as he starts the destruction. The apparitions come to him when he touches old books, reads hidden letters, rummages through old boxes, finds a locket, or reads a discovered manuscript of a murder mystery. From Out of the Woodwork will take you from 1899 to the horror of the World Trade Center, September 11, 2001. Check out From Out of the Woodwork on my website, www.williamspeckham.com.
1: Welcome back to Connecting with Coincidence and our guest, Ed Kelly. And we were, trying, we we're talking about drawing a, a line between uh, personal psi-mediated experiences like telepathy and clairvoyance versus some sort of bigger uh Kind of coincidence that uh, Ed can't describe in much detail right now because there's so many details involving multiple people. And I, and I, I, I go back to uh, Alexander Fleming and the and the the fi- the discovery and production of penicillin, which required maybe 10 or 15 different coincidences for that sequence to take place from his laboratory in 1921 to being able to be used in the World War II in the 19, early 1940s. These these are higher level coincidences. And I'm working with a with a guy in Australia trying to define uh, levels of, of coincidences, some that are more mm-hmm. probability based, as you're talking about, and to ones that can't be explained uh, by just saying uh, it's all the law of very large numbers, which is what statistician David Hand and others try to be able to say. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think with, without trying to get too much detail, because there's another question I want to get to, um, the, the, to me, there's something that the sign mediated individual Response tell, starts telling us something about the fact that our minds are immersed in a much bigger mind. It's a simple, mm-hmm. single example, which I like to tell people who will listen, suggests that you are part of a bigger mind when that happens. And you're not crazy, you're picking up something that's true.
2: Um. So to respond to this i need to say some more about beyond physicalism please do uh in in that book uh we as i indicated we start from the premise that a lot of these odd things happen and the goal of the book is to try to get at least a preliminary fix on how the world must be organized in order that such things can happen uh huh and to that, to that end, we sampled a variety of um, worldviews or conceptual frameworks, some very ancient, uh, coming from mystically informed religious philosophies, some coming from contemporary physics, and some coming from oh, a few centuries worth of uh, Western philosophy. And they all tend, we argue, particularly in part three, putting all the pieces together, uh, that they tend in a direction that amounts to essentially the exact opposite of the prevailing physicalism.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: They are leading toward what I think I think there 's really nowhere to stop once you abandon physicalism, short of its exact opposite, which says that uh, reality is mental throughout, and that all of our experience as individualized beings living in a shared shared world of some sort, has to be explained in terms of uh, things that go on in that greater mind. Now, there's one extra thing in in our view arising through irreducible mind, which is that we have a more complicated picture of what an individual human being's psyche is like. Uh, the big difference between Myers and James and the uh, so-called depth psychologies of Freud and Jung, for example, is that for Myers and James, there is a larger consciousness associated with each one of us, an individualized, larger consciousness that embraces all of our ordinary conscious life, but is, is much uh, greater in scope in some way we just don't understand very well, uh, but may include access to various kinds of supernormal capacities, including psi, genius and all the rest, mystical experiences. Uh, James took that as the point of departure for his latest work, uh, A Pluralistic Universe. He sketches a picture in which there can be a further hierarchy of these larger consciousnesses, and he addresses but does not definitively answer, nor do we, the question whether there's a, a terminal point in that series being some sort of universal consciousness that embraces everything. Uh, I'm inclined to think there probably is. James was very inclined to think that there is not. He talked about the uh, the unintelligible pantheistic monster and all that. Anyway, we talk about this at some length in chapter 14 of Beyond Physicalism. Do not arrive at any definite conclusion, uh, but it urge people to realize that the more we learn about how the brain permits these experiences to come in, the more we can have them available for study and the more we can potentially advance our sort of metaphysical inquiries on the basis of real evidence. That's the whole aim of this project.
1: Uh, What I got from this, Ed, uh, was much more clarity uh, about the individual each of us has an individual consciousness that is much more expanded than the one we walk around in daily life with. yeah yes, so, and I got the the image of uh, of my consciousness being kind of a. Oblong thing that stretches out with with uh, into the uh, something upper uh, what the psychosphere my my way of thinking about it, our mental atmosphere it stretches out in it, but it has a kind of dotted line around it, and it, particularly as it gets higher and higher, it begins to merge with something that's around it because the lines the dotted lines get more sparse uh, as and more let stuff more in more easily in, but to, the the I, it's a kind of a big balloon like in cartoons uh, where somebody's talking uh, and you see written in there that what they're talking about is that's kind of a, an image that I expand upwards and that's that's much clearer I have experiences something like that but you've put a word, some words on it, so I have a much clearer image. So thanks for that. And I have one more question. Um, how would you describe the relationship between coincidence studies and your own theoretical work of the last couple of years, last couple of decades?
2: Well, that's uh, kind of really what I've been talking about yes. here in this last part. Um, Bernie, let me do something. Let me do a little violence to your question here. I pleased to read you this fantastic passage from William James. This was in his uh, the last paper that he published when he was alive. There were okay. a couple more after he died, but go, go for here it. it is. Out of my experience, such as it is, and it is limited enough, one fixed conclusion dogmatically emerges, and that is this, that we with our lives are like islands in the sea, or like trees in the forest. The maple and pine may whisper to each other with their leaves, and Kananacut and Newport hear each other's foghorns. But the trees also commingle their roots in the darkness underground, and the islands also hang together through the ocean's bottom. Just so, there is a continuum of cosmic consciousness against which our individuality builds but accidental fences, and into which our several minds plunge as into a mother sea or reservoir. Our normal consciousness is circumscribed for adaptation to our our external earthly environment, but the fence is weak in spots and fitful influences from beyond leak in, showing the otherwise unverifiable common connection. Not only psychical research but metaphysical philosophy and speculative biology are led in their own ways to look with favor on some such panpsychic view of the universe as this. Assuming this common reservoir of consciousness to exist, this bank upon which we all draw, and in which so many of Earth's memories must in some way be stored, or mediums would not get at them as they do. The question is, what is its own structure? What is its inner topography? This question, first squarely formulated by Myers, deserves to be called Myers's problem by scientific men hereafter. What are the conditions of individuation or insulation in this mother sea? To what tracks, to what active systems functioning separately in it, do personalities correspond? And he goes on in that vein. It's great, fantastic vision. Oh,
1: it's it is. It puts together a lot of what I have been thinking about, uh, and such yeah. brilliant metaphors. And we have about uh, two minutes left, and I've I use trees more and more as I study them, as the mm. as a way of understanding um, what you just described. The, there's a, a a book called called Overstory uh, by Richard Powers uh, that puts trees as the central um, central players in this novel. And what you what they, what's in there and what uh, I experience is the consciousness of trees. It's not only that they have roots that connect with each other and make them. Um, communicate with each other. They also have the capacity that I'm discovering that others have discovering, Uh, Amalia Hart, uh, who was part of DOPS for a while, does a lot of this, being able to communicate with forests and trees and to recognize their consciousness and to recognize that they are teaching us, they can teach us how we are like the trees in our connectedness through our roots, through our whispering through ways that we don't understand above ground and that we are connected to each other the way they are and that they can tell us through their consciousness and through their operation just what William James was trying is trying to tell us in that brilliant passage. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I'd have to say I have some uh, concerns about uh, controls on... Uh, um, empirical controls on that kind of speculation, but um, I'm not unsympathetic to the basic idea. There's even an evolutionary biologist, Simon Conway Morris at uh, Oxford, world's leading expert on uh, um, convergence, who uh, tentatively describes evolution as a mechanism for producing structures which increasingly permit the expression of capacities inherent in the underlying cosmic consciousness.
1: Wonderful. We've come to the end of our show, Ed. You've been listening to Connecting with Coincidence with Bernie Beitman, MD, on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Ed, it's been a beautiful discussion with you. Thank you very much for being with us.
2: Glad to be here.